0: the previous century that I played basketball at Peru State College in Peru, Nebraska, go Bobcats, Um, and in my college playing career, I received exactly one technical foul. Now, if you don't know what a technical foul is, it is not one a player receives for illegal physical contact, like hitting someone on the arm. It is Assessed to a player or a coach that a referee believes exhibits disrespectful conduct or conduct that's detrimental to the game itself or another player. Um, And so here's that story, to my shame. During this particular game, very early in the game, I was playing poorly. Um, I'll try to describe in technical terms... I stunk. Uh, I was growing more and more frustrated with the stinkiness with which I stunk when a referee called me for a traveling violation, and the only reason he called me for traveling is because I totally traveled. My coach at that point had had enough, and he yanked me, which is the term for, it wasn't time for my normal, like, playing rotation to be done. He had just had enough of watching me stink the joint up. So he pulled me out of the game. My teammate came in for me. I I got over to the bench. Uh, I couldn't believe Coach made it that long, uh, to be honest. And I I made my way toward the end of the bench where the, the water cooler was. And on top of the water cooler, there were two of these exact sleeves of cups. Paper Gatorade cups, if you played basketball in the 90s, you have seen those. Uh, They were on top of of the water cooler. It was so early in the game, no one had even gotten a drink yet. You can't tell this, they're covered in plastic. It was all tied up with with the little factory seal thing on the bottom. And I sulked my way over there, saw those sleeves up there, and I grabbed that thing of cups off the top, not realizing the other end of the plastic was open. The resulting centrifugal force sent a cascade of paper products out onto the court while the game was in play. The referee, seeing garbage sprayed out on the floor, looked over at the bench and there I stood with the evidence in my hand. He came to the rather reasonable conclusion that I was throwing some sort of protest over the traveling violation, and he assessed me a technical foul. My coach looked down the bench and came to the same conclusion. He said nothing to me. I didn't play the rest of the first half. At halftime on our way into the locker room, he angrily told me, you are done here. Apparently, coach had never had a player throw trash onto the floor. This was new to him. I, did, I, don't, I don't think I said anything. I mean, what can I, I mean, I, do, I didn't mean to, sounded very weak, even in my head. So I said nothing. It was my roommate, Matt Thompson, who saved my playing career. He, uh, after halftime, he went and, and talked to Coach. He did not try to convince Coach that he hadn't seen what he actually saw. He didn't try to convince Coach there really wasn't approximately 66 paper cups scattered on the court. He didn't try to convince Coach that Maxwell wasn't the one that threw them there. He just tried to get Coach to see what had actually happened Differently. Somehow that story is going to relate to the book of Galatians this morning. We went on. I played the next half. I, I played the rest of the games. And somehow that's going to relate. I was reminded of that story studying this passage. We've been studying through the book of Galatians a paragraph at a time. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who had previously traveled to this region of the world. It's in what's today called Turkey. It was a Roman uh, province called Galatia. Paul planted several churches uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's since received word that there are false teachers in and around those churches telling people Believing in Jesus is not enough to make you okay with God. You have to believe in Jesus, sure. But you have to believe in Jesus, plus... And then they have other things one must do to be okay with God. And so Paul writes this letter as a passionate defense of the sufficiency of the gospel. He defends this gospel against anyone who would try to add to it. Early on in the book, Paul said, I don't care if an angel of heaven tells you a different gospel. Reject him. Paul said, I don't even care if I would tell you a different gospel. Reject me. And then he proved he meant that by sharing a story we read last week where Paul opposed Peter, the apostle. Because Peter last week, he's called Cephas in that paragraph, same guy. Peter caved in to some Jewish legalists. Legalism is this false idea that says we either establish or we maintain our, uh, our righteousness before God through our behavior. By the sins we avoid, by good things we do, by religious rituals we perform. Peter caved to some legalists, and last week we saw Paul opposed Peter publicly. This morning, we're going to start a paragraph where we learn why. We've been going through this book a paragraph at a time, but there's too much in the next paragraph to get through in one week. So I divided it in half. We're only going to do part of a paragraph this morning. It is, it's so dense, this next paragraph, that... I just had to slow down to get us through it. Let's read just Galatians two chapters 15 through 18, and then see what the Lord would have for us in those verses today. Paul, still speaking to Jewish Christians, maybe even to Peter, Paul says this: "We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we, we Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found to be sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. There is our passage this morning. And as you read through just the first couple of verses of this paragraph, it becomes immediately apparent That one word sort of takes center stage. This center stage, this word justified, is all over the first couple of verses. I am convinced you can't understand the book of Galatians if you don't understand this paragraph. And I'm positive you can't understand this paragraph if you don't understand the word justification. To be justified. That's what this is about. I know I've talked about justification relatively recently in the book of Galatians, but there's no way around it. We're not going to understand this passage if we don't understand that word. So the first thing I want to do this morning is to visit with you a little bit about what it means that we are justified by faith and just what that word itself means. If we were to look up justification in a, in a Christian Bible or a, or a theological dictionary, um, in a Christian dictionary or a theological dictionary, we would find something like this. The doctrine, the Christian doctrine of justification, it means it's the event when God declares a sinful person to be righteous. He doesn't make them become righteous. He declares them that they are legally. It's a legal term. That's why I had a, a, a gavel on the bulletin and on the title slide. It's God declaring someone to be legally righteous. That's the, and God promises to do that for all those who believe in Jesus. That's a short version of the Christian doctrine of justification. I've talked about that relatively recently. I want to come at it from a different angle this morning and just talk about the actual word, not from a sort of theological perspective, but just the word justified, what that means. And it's a a really good translation because the Greek word means exactly the same thing. What does it mean? What does the word justification mean? Justification, simply put, is changing the view of something that has happened. It's changing the view of something that has happened The reason I told my story of my technical foul, not just to embarrass myself in front of all of you, but after I had scattered those cups about the playing surface, I did not want to deny that that had happened to my coach. I didn't want to convince my coach either that it didn't really happen or that it wasn't wrong to throw cups onto the court during a game. I just wanted him to change the way he viewed what had actually happened. That's justification. When you were young and you were getting in trouble, you immediately started justifying yourself to your parents, to your teacher, by saying things like, she started it, right? What you wanted that authority figure to do is see you differently based on sort of what had happened. Justification is not denial. It's just trying to convince someone to change their view of what has actually happened. And I want you to know, no matter who you are and what is going on in your life, you are looking for justification. Everyone, everyone who has ever lived is looking for, is desiring justification. And again, I don't mean necessarily from God. Because we all want to be known, to be understood, and to be accepted. We want somebody to know who we really are and say, you're okay. You're my kind of person. You want to be justified by your spouse, maybe, by your kids. Don't you want your kids to, to, to accept you, your older kids, especially? You wanna, there's a friend group, there's someone at work. You, we all want this. In my opinion, that's all this is. If you look around, you can see the search for justification, it's everywhere. In my opinion, the entire trans movement that's working its way across the country and around the world is a search for justification. Some people saying, Here's who I really am. But what do they want? They want someone else to affirm that, to say, You're okay how you are, and, and we accept you, and you should be celebrated. It's a search for justification. And everyone is after that, that thing. Now, most of us, if we're here, I will will assume you believe in God, that there is a God out there. Most of us believe someday we're going to stand before that God and hear a judgment. So most of us want to be justified, not just by friend groups and spouses and somebody I hope to date or something like that, We want to be justified by God. We want God to look at us and say, you're okay. I accept you. And here's where biblical Christianity differs from every other school of religious thought in the world. Because every other school of religious thought says to be justified by God, to have God look at you and say, you're okay. Here's what you have to do. Here are the rules you must keep. Here are the things you must avoid. Here's the religious offerings you must bring or or rituals you must do. My justification then will be based on my, my present moral condition, which is just the accumulation of my past actions. My present moral condition, my future moral improvement will determine whether or not I'm justified and we just can't know. Where we're at. That's every religion everywhere in the world. Biblical Christianity is different. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, this message that Paul traveled around sharing, that he was so adamant to defend, the gospel shifts the basis of our justification. It's not based on our present moral condition, it's not based on our future moral improvement. The basis of your justification, O Christian, is from one event in the past, the cross of Jesus Christ. Christianity says, God is not someday going to look at you and determine whether or not you have been good enough. God is going to look at you and, and see, have you been justified by faith in the cross of Jesus Christ? Because there, at the cross, the Bible says what happened there is that all if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, all of your sins went on Him. The wrath of God, all of your sins deserved, was poured out on Him. And they were completely, fully punished. And now, when you believe in that God, takes his righteousness and puts it on our account so that when God looks at us, he sees legally the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not your track record. When we look at the cross, we really, before we should see our forgiveness and salvation, we we should see Our punishment. We should see the wrath of God that should have been aimed at me, but it was aimed and poured out instead on Him. And the cross then does something when you believe in what Jesus did for you at the cross, something utterly amazing happens. You get justified. Because of the cross, God has changed his view of you. He doesn't get amnesia. He doesn't like not know what you've done. It's just his view of what really has happened is changed permanently. When you sin, newsflash, he knows. When you sinned last week, He knew. Try to wrap your mind around this. The sin you're going to sin six years from now, He already knows that one. But He has changed. The cross of Jesus Christ has changed God's view of you. It's the basis of you being okay with Him. You're justified. He sees you differently. And understand, your justification by God is already done. It is an event that's already happened in the past if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. It is not pending. It's not loading. Right? It, it doesn't have the little swirly thing your computer gives you sometimes. It doesn't have the hourglass. You're not waiting to see. It's done. It's fully loaded and it cannot change. So justification is not where... It's not a vitamin. It's not steroids for your behavior. Your justification is not where God gives you the ability to do what you couldn't do before you met Jesus, which is be behaviorally righteous. Righteous. Because you can't. But there's a view of that. I'm going to come to Jesus. He's going to clean me up. And then I'm not going to have these problems anymore. You may not have some of those problems anymore. You'll find more. Your justification is not God wiping you clean. And then saying we'll see. There's this false view of God's Grace. God, please give me the grace to behave. Please give me the grace to be good to my wife. Please give me the grace to... I'm not crazy about that language. It's not unearned ability to do what I couldn't do before. It's an unearned declaration of righteousness in the high court of the universe that everyone who believes in Jesus receives. That may be new for you. You may be sort of hearing that for the first time or understanding it for the first time. It may not be how you were raised. But I want you to know this is not some newfangled idea I'm espousing up here. This was Paul's main idea. Justification by faith. He wrote about it all the time. And just to prove that to you, this is not some new uh, fangled approach or interpretation. I found, I, I read something called, or from something called the Heidelberg Catechism. I don't even know what this is, full disclosure. I just read one paragraph when I was studying for this sermon that is just a great explanation of justification, and it was written 500 years ago. In this catechism that came out of the Reformation in 1563, I think, it asks this question, Why are you righteous before God? That's a good question. Because you ain't getting into heaven unless you're righteous before God. That's the entrance requirement. So why are you righteous before God? And then here's the answer written 500 years ago. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. In spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of them, and that I'm still ever prone to all that is evil. Nevertheless, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace grants me the benefit of perfect expiation of Christ, which is Christ turning away the wrath of God or absorbing the wrath of God and imputing to me Jesus' righteousness and holiness as if I'd never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, as if I'd fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me if only I accept such favor with a trusting heart. I could have just read that and skipped the embarrassing story about my technical foul and everything that has come before. That's justification. It, it comes by faith in Christ only. There's no other way. And it's been the message of the gospel for 2,000 years. Okay. If we understand justification, we're ready to dig in to this paragraph. I'll remind you, the first two verses, 15 and 16, read this way. Uh, Paul says, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one ever, ever will be justified. Here's what Paul's saying there. Paul's addressing, there's some scholars who believe this is still part of his conversation with Peter from last week. I don't know. But Paul is definitely addressing Jewish people who understand the cross of Christ is important. Okay? The Jews always, or the Israelites, always thought of themselves as advantaged people religiously because they were. From the rest of the world in ancient times, God chose one people group to reveal himself to, and that was Israel. That gave Israel some advantages the rest of the world didn't have. They got the scriptures, the tabernacle and the temple, the law, the prophets. But Paul says the main advantage that we had, the law, God's rules, where God laid out what behavioral righteousness would look like, the main job, really the only job the law did for us was to show us there's no way we can be justified by following the law. If, if you are hoping that you're going to stand before God someday and He's going to say, you know what, you are a pretty good person who tried, you were better than most, If that's your hope, I want you to know you are hopeless. You have no hope. Because the bar of righteousness is way higher. Right? James says whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. You know why? Because it's a covenant, it's a package deal. You either keep it or you have broken it. Guess what? You fall into the latter category. So do I. Paul says what the law taught us is we couldn't be justified by the law. God is not going to change His view of you based on how much better you're going to be doing behaviorably three years from now. That's not going to change His view of you. Paul says we learned that as Jewish people. That's why we accepted Jesus Christ. Whether he's talking to Peter, his Jewish opponents, the false teachers in Galatia, these are people who believe that the cross of Christ is important. The law can't change God's view of anybody. They all agree on this point. So Paul's opponents say that's why we need Jesus. He sort of wipes the slate clean. That's the sacrifice we need. but Now we're ready to to move on to a point of contention. That's what the law taught Israel. We can't be justified through behavioral goodness. But then Paul says this, verse 17. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I once destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker or a transgressor, transgressor. So Paul has taught consistently that justification happens through faith in Christ. It's an event in my past. right? My justification is already complete. I'm as righteous legally before God as I ever will be 10 million years from now. I won't be any more righteous in God's Judgment than I am right now. That's what justification does. That always brings this argument. Paul was always fighting against this. Okay, Paul. If that's your message, that people get justified by God when they believe in Jesus Christ, then what happens if they find themselves to be sinner, to be a sinner? If you say. Their righteousness in God's judgment hasn't taken a hit. If you say their future sin cannot undo their justification, then what you're really saying, Paul, is that Christ is a sin promoter. That Jesus tells people, hey, just believe in me and just get out there and sin all the sins you want to sin. I no longer care about sin. In fact, I'm just, I'm okay with it. That's what you're teaching, Paul. And Paul says, Absolutely not. That's never true. The false teachers and well meaning religious folks over the past 2,000 years say, Here's what justification must really be like. We can't be justified by the law, so we believe in Jesus Christ. He cleans us up. He wipes away all of our sin. We're in a justified state, but then he puts us back out there and pats us on the bottom and says, now go be better. Try harder. And then we hold the law up to ourselves, see how we're doing. If we find that we have sinned, then we're knocked out of being okay in God's eyes. We have to run back and try it all over again. He will justify us again. And he sends us out there. Now, this time, you better be good. And we've got to keep the law in front of folks. Otherwise, we won't be able to control people's behavior. They'll just go crazy. Paul says that amounts to rebuilding what I once destroyed. We have to understand this to understand this paragraph. What is it that Paul destroyed that he doesn't want to rebuild? It's not the law. Paul did not destroy the law. In fact, we go elsewhere in Paul's reading and hear Paul read, Paul write, the law is perfect. The law is awesome. It's we that are the problem. The law is great. So what did Paul does not want to rebuild that he wants to destroy? What Paul destroyed is the idea that he could obtain righteousness through his own behavior. You know, Paul learned something when he met Jesus, the risen Jesus on that road to Damascus. He learned something about himself that was new. You know what it was? Paul did not learn that I'm a sinner and God hates my sin. Paul already knew that. Paul did not learn that I'm a sinner and God rejects sin. No, no. what Paul learned when he met Jesus is God also rejects my righteousness. My measly, paltry level of righteousness does not hold a candle to the blindingly white, hot holiness of Jesus Christ and the Father. And so what Paul destroyed was his self-righteousness, which just means the idea that I could get to a point where I can claim to be righteousness by myself, from what I do. Paul talks about this in, the, in, in the, his letter to the, to the Philippians. Paul says, the stuff I used to do that I thought was gain, my religious works right? The, the, when I gave away money, when I avoided sin, all these things that I thought were gained to me, I'm almost there. God's going to think I'm righteous. I'm, I'm trying really hard. Paul said, I thought that stuff was getting me closer to God, but it actually was keeping me from God because I was deceiving myself into thinking I'm almost righteous. And then he met Jesus and was like, wow, I was not even close like, I was so far away from close, I couldn't even see close from where I was at. So Paul destroys the idea that we can be good enough behaviorally to change God's view of us. And so Paul is saying, if I accept Christ as my Savior, accept that gift of Him forgiving my sin, wiping my slate clean, But then I go right back to living basically the same way I used to, trying to be good and following all the rules. The only thing I'm going to do is prove myself to be a lawbreaker over and over and over again. I couldn't do it before. I can't do it now. Because the law only has one job is to tell people they need a Savior, to tell people they're not righteous. Folks, my friends, Jesus did not save you by empowering you and enabling you to behave well enough that God will like you. Jesus justified you. Do you hear me? Some people, they come, they, oh, I'm so tired of the way I am, this addiction, I'm so tired of this sin, I'm so tired of whatever, and so I'm going to go, I'm going to meet Jesus, I'm going to get saved so that I won't do this anymore. Those people leave the church disillusioned in waves because Jesus didn't save you by empowering you to be what you can't be which is behaviorally righteous now I'm not saying there won't be growth I'm not saying that he cannot help us get rid of sin he absolutely can and he will and he does That's a story for next week. For this week, the reason he sees you as righteous is not dependent on how you are doing. What we want, what we want is a righteousness of our own. We want to be justified based on who we are and how we are doing. You're not going to get there. You are justified based on who He was and what happened to Him and who God is. When you believe in Jesus Christ, the way God views you is so permanently altered, nothing can undo it. Nothing. That's justification by faith. And that is why in the book of Ephesians that David mentioned a minute ago, Paul writes this, that God saved us, he rescued us, he chose us, he adopted us to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in Jesus. God justified you to make his grace look awesome. If we're not really, really careful, that's not what we want if we're not really careful, what we want to be praised, spoken well of, is how much better I am than I used to be. How good I'm doing. God didn't save you so that people could look at you and say, man, he's awesome now and he used to be kind of a jerk. Now listen, that can happen. But that's not the reason he justified you. He justified you to the praise and glory of His marvelous grace. And when we, when we mix this up, when we believe that to live the Christian life means... He saved me. He set me back out there. I've got the rules. I'm going to see how I'm doing. And when I blow it, I've got to punish myself, condemn myself. I've got to do that for others. And the fear, the the condemnation of failure is what's going to control people's behavior. That is going to result in this kind of legalistic faith that Paul has sworn himself to uproot and burn out of Christendom. It will guarantee that none of us will talk about the stuff we actually need to talk about. When we believe the Christian life is grading ourselves based on the law, we won't have hard conversations because we know we will be condemned. I will condemn myself. That person will condemn me, which brings us back to last week's sermon. The only results are Condemnation and hypocrisy. I can't talk about it because so I'll, I'll be condemned so I better go with option B, hypocrisy, pretending I don't have this struggle I actually do. And so we hide behind masks of piety, of behavioral righteousness to the praise and glory of my ability to be okay. But what happens, Paul says, but what happens if while living this justified life, I am found out to be a sinner? What do I do? Do I just say, well, Jesus doesn't care about sin anymore? May it never be. No way. How do we respond? How do, what's the Christian life supposed to look like if it's not constantly hold the law up to myself, punish myself when I fail, celebrate my goodness when I don't, or pretend Deceive myself into thinking that I'm nailed. What's it supposed to look like? You ever wonder that? Come back next week. Because that's what we're going to talk about next week. But for today. For today, I want you to, to walk away hopefully understanding these two things better. First, if you're, this is only for those of you who have believed that Jesus went to the cross in your place and absorbed your punishment. If you believe that, I want you to know you have been justified. Past tense, like it's finished, it's over. The gavel fell on the desk of the universe and you were declared not just not guilty. You didn't get let off on some technicality. You've been declared to be perfectly righteous. You look like you've done every good thing God would have ever wanted you to do and none of the bad things. And nothing can undo that. Because, not because God doesn't care about sin, because God's view of you and your sin has been permanently altered forever and ever and ever. That would be a good time for an amen. Thank you. Now, second, that sets you free. Now it doesn't set you free to sin and sin and sin without ever having any consequences. That's ridiculous. Because sin causes pain and death and hurt. There's just one consequence your sin can no longer have. Really, only one. You know what it is? Hell. That's not a consequence anymore, but there's plenty of others. But understanding your justification does set you free to stop hiding, to stop condemning yourself where God no longer condemns you, to stop deceiving yourself into thinking you are what you're not, It sets you free to have difficult conversations about yourself and about others. And if someone else finds out you happen to not be righteous, that's okay. That person ain't righteous either. God is well aware of every deed you have ever done and will ever do. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, His view of you and those things has just been permanently altered that's the power of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that's what it did now again so what does it look like as we move forward how do we think about this Christian life please come back I only got halfway through this paragraph I just thought this sermon would be awfully long if I tried to uh fit that in here so Come back next week. Tune in next week and we'll talk about what the Christian life of a justified sinner looks like. Let's pray. Our Father, um, to say we are grateful for our justification doesn't quite uh, do justice to what we should be feeling. You really do make us look through the blood of Jesus Christ uh, just as if We'd never sinned and done everything right. But Lord, we still struggle with wanting a a righteousness of our own. We we still struggle with wanting to be justified based on how well we're doing. And that sort of needs to be rooted out of us. It's damaging. So God, will will you help us depend?